Okay. <laughs> okay. Hello, this is Teachings in the Air with Sahilthit. It's a great day for, for me. I'm coming to you from the unceded territory of the Muskiam, Tsalalewatooth, and Squamish people. Oh, I know so many of their people. They're beautiful people. It's good to be back in their territory of the Hunkameenam-speaking people. I'd just like to acknowledge them today and confess to them that I thank them for being who they are, being beautiful people. Today's podcast is called We Are All One. And I called it that because actually the podcast is about racism in this country. You know, I worked for, since 1976, as a human service worker. Started in my community as an addictions counselor. You know, 1976. So that means I stopped drinking and doing drugs. So I put my heart into helping the people. My heart and my soul, you can say, in my mind. It's like it was, I went out and I was wanting to help the people. Because I come from that, you know, and I tell people, and some people get ashamed when I say that, I know, but I need to tell the truth. That I used to drink till I fall on the ground, my, my friends and relatives would tell me. And I was doing drugs. So when I stopped, I thought, gee, I'm the right one to help these people. So I started working. You might as well say I was working 24-7. Ah, gee, maybe three or four years. Over the years, I would be weary and depressed as I witnessed a devastation of individuals, families, and communities that became unmanageable and dysfunctional in their lives because of alcohol and drug abuse. I watched that around me. I would see my relatives and my friends seemingly lost. Pilp in my language, they say, oh, they're lost. So I... I kept working, and it seemed like I was Sisyphus, the guy that's pushing a round rock up the mountain, and it gets so high, and then it rolled down, and I have to start over again. In a way, I felt like that. So I've been part of a system that's wanted to provide a relevant way of healing. You know, because of that... Um, I guess I could see the helplessness and the hopelessness of my people in their eyes and their body language. You know, this was clearly reflected the way the people were living. Like the many were, seemed to be bored, listless, weary, depressed, 
It's like their lives had become hateful to them. And I knew that feeling because that's where I come from. My life had become hateful for me. So I'd pick up the bottle and I would drink. And it's really sad because I'll tell you today I had children. After I sobered up, I have lots of regrets. You know, over the years, I ask myself, how can this be? Because I'd hear stories from my grandmother, my grandfather, how our people used to live. And I used to wish, I wished I was back there. I was born 300 years too early. I wished I was there when they were all speaking the language and somebody would sing and they'd all get up and dance. And they said our communities were clean. My uncle says they'd all go together. They'd all go pick berries up in the mountain. Everybody. And my uncle says, you know, nephew, how, when we left the camp, it was like we weren't there. There was no human beings there. That's how careful we were with the land. It was clean. So I asked myself, how did we get this way? What happened? Today, over the years, I figured out why we became this way. And <laughs> in one of my moments of anger, because to me, when I lose control of myself and I get angry, it's not being indigenous. But I was angry one day, and I said, I know why. It's because of the invasive species that come here. I was calling Europeans invasive species. Because an invasive species is when a species comes in and takes over. And it's hard to get rid of that invasive species. Like knapweed, where I'm from. This weed come in and start taking over. It's hard to get rid of. So that's what I was calling Europeans, invasive species. You know, I don't say that anymore. But that's how I felt at that moment in my life. That's why we're like this. You know... Those human beings come here to this land to occupy it and take it over, to subjugate the Uchelmilcha, their original people. You know that species or those Europeans took root, and now they have full political and economic control of where my grandmother and all her relatives used to pick berries by the Fraser River where they dried salmon. Canada says they now control that. You know that they became privileged in this country and my people became poor. We were oppressed by assimilation policies that were meant to destroy our way of life. That's what happened. 
And I don't like to dwell on what happened, but I think I know that I talk about this to create understanding. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I don't want to feel sorry for myself. Because I want to be a fighter, I want to be a warrior, like my late cousin said. Geez, Jerry, you worry too much. You're a warrior. He says, I want you to be a warrior. A warrior is someone that is brave and fearless when they protect the people and they protect the land. And I said, okay, cousin, I'm going to be a warrior. But because of that colonization process, there now exists a dysfunctional, codependent relationship between all First Nations and Canada. Not all First Nations as individuals, but the groups. Codependent means that we want to manipulate somebody to make us feel good. That's what codependency is about. And a husband and wife, if the husband's always saying to the wife, you do this, that's the only way I'm going to be happy, that's codependent. You know, living under the Canadian rule of law has been unjust. You know, because justice means absolute fairness for all. And it hasn't been fair for us. And uh, it's reflected in the conditions in our communities today. Our population is expanding and our reserves aren't growing. So pretty soon the reserves will be all houses. There's no room to start a business there. And the sad part is that um, resources that have been taken to help Canada, very little come back to us where we used to hunt and fish. Oh, gee, I hear the stories from my granny. We'd, oh, we'd go up there. There's a mountainside. That's where the wild potatoes and onions are, son. And we go and the flowers come up. That's how we know they're there. And we dig them up. And we have enough for all winter for everybody in our community. I don't know how many years later they come and they clear cut. They take all the trees. My late mother says, they come, they take, and they go. And we still, we stay here. You know, when a system is failing and believe me, the system is failing today because we've got climate change and global warming happening. When a system is failing, it's because of the individuals that are running a system or the system itself is faulty. There's something wrong with it. And I think it's a combination. We've been put under a system that has been design, designed for failure. And that is, of course, is the Indian Act. 
So that's part of what happened, you know, and I started to figure out what happened with us. How come we c I could drink till I fall on the ground? How come I can run away from my culture? You know, and it's because of what happened. So what the challenge that we have today is trauma that has been caused by oppression through racist policy and law that were designed to put down and marginalize the people. Marginalize, put them, push them to the side. And this, I see this all over the land. Trauma is a Greek word which literally means to wound, to get a cut. And we've been wounded in that cut is finally healing. It hasn't been, you know, and they, I, my people were dying in 1854 from smallpox. They started to get wounded then by the policies of this country. And we're now healing from it. I know we are. It took a while, but our people are really resilient. So not only our mind was wounded, our bodies were wounded and our spirits were wounded. They were cut. And the reason why was to create privilege for the newcomers to our territories. And um, that's what happened. So I understood. I started to have an understanding of what happened. Why Jerry got the way Jerry is. Why Sahilthit. For 13 years of my life, or 14 years of my life, I was a drunk. I finally started to understand. And when I understood, I stopped beating myself up so much. I started to move, I started to heal, I started to develop, I started to get stronger in my wish to help the people. <laughs> and I'm so glad that that happened. But when I say we are all one, and I said this podcast is about racism, because racism, the word racism, is two words. Race means our ethnicity, like I'm statlium. Ism is a word too. And it's talking about the negative or that noun or that description of me as statlium, that there's something negative there between me and other races. That's racism. There's alcoholism. I was an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. So there's a negative thing between me and alcohol. As soon as I started drinking, I, I started blacking out. And I'd be drunk for days and weeks on end. Alcoholism, it's a negative. So anything with an ism in it is saying there's something negative about it. <laughs> Just this year, I was listening to a politician, he says, capitalism. I said, they're even admitting, they, maybe they don't know it, that 
doing this capitalism is negative. That's why climate change and global warming is happening. So to create understanding is what I'm all about. Because when I understood, I started to heal. You know, and I'm... You know, it's been an incredible journey for me. I get depressed. I get motivated. I get burnt out. I'd help uh, people want to stop drinking. I'd work with them. Somebody had phoned me, oh, your client's drunk downtown. I go down and get them, you know, and I'd... I would get tired. But I knew what they were feeling. So I wouldn't give up. And I guess probably the biggest thing is I've seen the looks in the eyes of their children when they see their parents under the influence. That is one of my big motivators. So I had helped them. So part of my understanding of what happened is that um, we were traumatized. And I say there's six R's. And the R I want to talk about today is racism. You know, and I, I remember. I forget what year it was that I started to. First time, because up until that time, I didn't think about racism. Even though white people would treat me negative and treat me bad and I see what happens to everybody, I still wasn't calling it racism. You know? <laughs> and I think about it, gee, that's, that's really something. Yeah, and I started... At one time I, I said when I was depressed. And I started to look at racism, that it was a social, political construct, that somebody created this image, that we're not human, or we're partly human. Actually, in history books, it talks about that. In 1492, I think it's Christopher Columbus went back to Europe and said, there's people there where I went to. And he's talking about the Caribbean. And the Pope says, are they Christians? Christopher says, no, they're not. They're pagans. And the Pope said the first racist words about us. That land is terra nullius. It's an empty land. So he was not recognizing us as human beings. It gave the colonizers permission to do what they want with us because the Pope had lots of authority in those times. That's where the construct, the seed of racism in my mind come from. I want to let your listeners know Sahil is talking about his understanding. This is my understanding. I want that to be clear. So if you're going to blame anybody about what I'm saying, you blame Sahilthit. So it was created. Racism was created. 
Because a human being's not born to not like someone because they look different. I know that today. So those colonizers that come here, there's very few of them really, because they're appointed by the king and queen. That Christopher Columbus was appointed by Queen Isabella of Spain, and she gave him money to buy three ships to come over. Then the king and queen of England appointed colonial governors. Go set up a colony for us. Get more territory for us. Get resources for us. So I started to see those people, the colonizers, the real colonizers, were in love with power. They go crazy by being rich. And they want more. They don't even know, seem to know when's enough's enough. They just want more. They're greedy. They were driven by the love of power. And you go to any length to gain power. We, we look back now, and I look back, and my elders telling me they were planting smallpox blankets in Statlium territory. And it killed 85% of our people. The people that were doing that were individual Europeans rubbing the blankets and somebody's got smallpox and giving it to my relatives. That's an evil mind. That's what in love with power does. So remember, and I said, it's all about gaining new territory and resources, such as fur, precious metals like gold, land, beaver, you know, pelts, for the sovereigns and the royals in Europe. So I made up my mind, that's where racism comes from. Because I was reflecting on my life, and I was wondering, where does this blatant hatred for me come from? I'd see a white person in a local town where I'm from, and they look at me, and it's like, you know, that saying, like, it could burn holes through you with a look in their eye. I'd see people looking at me like that. I say, where is that? What is this? You know, it's... Um, and I knew I hadn't done nothing to them. I hadn't hurt them to warrant that hurt that they're laying on me through racism. That I didn't do anything wrong. And I started to understand then that they believed I was inferior to them. That I'm not at their level. At this time, now I started to use the word racism. And I knew racism was alive and well in Canada. And my feeling at that time was that I would ignore them. And that I was going to not stoop to the level of a racist. I'm not going to be like them. 
<laughs> I was literally saying it to myself when I started to understand racism. I did not confront racism because at that time I was part of a movement to bring healing to the people around addictions and violence and suicide. Racism was low on a totem pole, you know, of <laughs> my priorities. You know, on the very first time I started to work on racism, I was working as a consultant in 1994. I was called to NVIT to work with the staff and faculty. And they were wanted me to do a presentation for their staff and the faculty, all the teachers and the ones that work in, the, in that institute. And they said, uh, the one that hired me said, well, yeah, I want you to do a presentation about racism. You know, we're starting to have problems with that. And um, gender issues. And I remember I said, yeah, I'll do the racism. But gender issues, I think you should get a female to come in to do that. Because the gender issues she was referring to was chauvinism. The men were treating the women faculty and staff bad. The men faculty and the men staff. Chauvinism. Remember, ism is a negative. <laughs> you know? So I... I started to do my research, do my workshop. Hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh. You know, so this racism, I started to demystify it for myself. And started to realize what's important here is my power not the power of the racist. The big surprise for me was the church's influence to create the social construct called racism, to have racism in the society called Canada. You know, that church influence, you know, that actually was the root of oppression. When the Pope said, that's terra nullius, it's empty land. And then, of course, they started calling us pagan, savage, heathen Indians. It's a negative. So it created fear in the minds of the ones that were coming here, the immigrants and the settlers. So when they'd see an indigenous person, they, oh, that's a devil worshiper. Like these rattles and things that they use, that's a devil's tool. Their language is a devil's language. So of course people would be afraid. <laughs> I know that because as a child I was told about the devil. And I was told about hell at the residential school and school. We'd have religious instruction every day. And they taught me about the devil and about hell. I remember I asked, how long people go to hell? And they said, forever. 
Boy, did that scare me. I was frightened. How do you get to hell? Oh, and you tell lies. You don't go to church, you know, and you steal and you do things, you know. Your soul gets covered with black and you'll go to hell. That was frightening. So I accepted that that's how Europeans were thinking, that they were frightened and they were thinking that we're devils. Even that term redskin, you know, because the devil's supposed to have a red hide, red skin, and horns and a tail and hoofs. Oh, that was frightening for me as a child. You know, and I, so and then I started to understand how come the Europeans were afraid of us. And they accept this social construct of racism. So I know that's where it comes from today. You know, Canada is a highly organized system of a race-based privilege. I heard one of our political leaders early on, when I was in my 20s, and he was saying we're like monkeys at the feast. We're eating the crumbs that fall off the table. He says, I want a third order of government. I want a piece of the action. He wanted jobs for his people. So that's what I mean, highly organized. And it's held together by a belief of race supremacy that we're inferior people to them. That's where it comes from. So all of you out there listening, if you're wondering where racism comes from, maybe you can think like Sahilthit. And you, they're not born that way, they're made. They're influenced. They have their own influencers. I want to be an influencer on healing, on motivation, and inspiring people to heal, to get stronger. That's what I want to influence. So you just go to the opposite side and you think of people influencing other people that there's something wrong with those people. They don't care about their children. You know, they're lazy. They're stupid. They're crazy, you know. So if children are hearing this and they look at us and they say, oh, gee, it's one of those stupid Indians or crazy Indians. Any child, all children absorb what they hear like a sponge. That's what my granny told me. Have to be careful when you talk to the children because they absorb, they just take it in. So I imagine the... A Canadian child sitting around the table and the father or mother saying negative comments about indigenous people. That's how that child learns, listening. That racism has inflicted heavy damage on our way of life. You know, and it's sanctioned beliefs to justify occupying our land and our water. But enough of that now. I think you get it. You understand where sea hills it's coming from. That's where racism come from. 
It just didn't come out of anywhere. Let it come. It was planted by a few people. People in love with power, totally. They want all the trees. They want all the salmon, the gold. They don't want to share it. You know, as a child, I seen rage, seemed like rage against me. In the eyes, you know, when you look at somebody's eyes, you could see anger. As a child, I, I felt that. When I was struck for making a mistake across my ears and my face, it traumatized me. So I became afraid of white people. Just like they were afraid of us, but mine was because of violence and aggression from them. Because aggression means you want to create fear and harm in another person when you're aggressive. For them, they were afraid of us at the beginning, that we're devil worshippers, that we're heathens, pagan savages. So that fear was created for them. And my fear was different. My fear was that they're going to humiliate me. They're going to shame me. They're going to hit me in front of everybody and tell me I'm stupid. So that had the impact on me. It took many years for me to heal from that when I was told I was a stupid Indian as a child. I tell people today, you know, I wanted to be a history teacher. I just loved reading, and I still love reading. I was reading about Alexander the Great, about Genghis Khan, Cleopatra, and Julius Caesar, all of those things. I was reading it. And I loved history. And I wanted to be a history teacher. But in 1968, I walked out of Kamloops Indian Residential School, and I said, I'm not going to school anymore. My dad said, oh, gee, son, I'm glad you graduate. Now you can go to college. <laughs> I said, Dad, I don't want to go there anymore. And I had a wonderful dad. And he says, okay, go to work then. You go get a job. You're not staying here, you know, which was a good thing. And I went logging in Alaska, of all places. And I was a logger. 18 years old, I'm out logging on the West Coast. <laughs> he told me, and I was walking out the door. He says, when you go to work, when those white guys are walking on the job, you run. Because if you want to hold your job, you have to work harder than them. See, he understood racism. So I said, okay, Dad. And my uncles were saying, yeah. Because they were working during the dirty 30s, they called it the Great Depression. They said it was hard for us to get a job because we're Indians. And they wouldn't hire us. And they would look for an excuse to fire us. 
So they had that fear in them, and they put it in me, and they said, you work, you go work hard. Go early, leave late. Show them that you deserve a job, you can work. So I done that. <laughs> but I encountered racism there too. So now I'm going to talk about, you know, that I, I, t- I said this recently, that Canada is not racist. Canada is a country that has racists living in it. The police are not racist. They have racist policemen and women working for them. So we don't think like a teenager and generalize that everybody's racist. That's not true. Anyway, so I was in Alaska. Only indigenous. I was just a skinny 18-year-old kid, you know. Not a kid, really, a young man. And I'm logging, and this great big six-foot-eight man comes to work. And he says, I'm a Vietnam vet. I just got back from Vietnam, he says. And I was looking at him, oh. First time I stood beside somebody that's six-foot-eight, literally looking up at him. So he's talking to us out in the logging, out in the bush. And he was saying that about how crazy that war is in Vietnam, fighting those gooks. And I was, I don't know, 10 feet away from him. I said, you're a racist. No, I'm not. He says, yes, you're a racist because you're calling them gooks or Vietnamese. And I don't even know where this comes from as an 18-year-old. And all of a sudden, he's chasing me around. And he's so big and clumsy, he couldn't keep up to me. I was just running because all the trees were laying around because we're loggers. And he couldn't catch me. He fell down, and he's a big man. And he stood up, and he looked at me, and he says, Jerry. He says, you're right. He says, I'll never use that word again. And he became my friend. An ally. An ally means somebody that ties himself to you. And he proved it. Because there were men in the logging camp. They would swear, use bad language, and they see me. Oh, there's that effing blanket ass. There's that stupid Indian. And there was, I know there was about eight of them that were like a gang of men. And I became frightened. Every time I see him, I'd walk other way. And we're in a small logging camp. And one day I said, oh, I'm going to quit. I can't take this anymore. That night, that day, I said, I'm quitting. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. And I went to the shower, and I showered up before I go eat, and... I was going in after I went to my room and I changed and I was going into the dining hall. And one of my other friends says, Hey, did you hear what Tiny done? We called the six feet eight man Tiny, you know, because he's so big. I said, No, what did Tiny do? And they said, You know that Jim? 
He's the ringleader for the racists. He said he followed Jim into the bathroom and he picked him up with one hand by the lapel of his shirt and lifted him up and banged his head against the ceiling. <laughs> and he says, I don't want to hear anything negative about Jerry again. And he dropped him on the floor. All of a sudden, the racists were quiet in the camp. <laughs> you know, they had this great big man, six foot eight, defending Jerry. That's an ally. I just, Tiny and I became the best of friends. Where he goes, I go. Where I go, he goes. It's surprising for me that in 1969, I actually was around racism. Then I left there, and I didn't see it anymore. In a sense, it's always there. But then, years later, now I started working anti-racism. Literally trying to heal the racist from being racist towards indigenous people. That's what I do today. It's part of my job. And I do believe racists can heal. Racists can heal. They can change. And that's what I wanted to impress upon you today to help you understand that they're human beings too. That's why this podcast is called We Are All One. We're all one. We're human beings. We all got the same blood, everything. The color of our skin is different. Our eyes is different. But we're all one. So I wanted to talk to you about that so we can teach our children not to let their lives be ruined by racists to accept that there's racism in this country but it's not our problem it's their problem they're the ones that are negative they're the ones that are lost not us I want to impress that upon the indigenous people that racism is not really our problem. It's their problem. It's our problem when they hurt us and they discriminate and say, you're not getting any medicine. You're not coming here. That's discrimination. Or stereotyping us, saying you're all drunks. You're all lazy. That's not true. So I wanted to create a message around this topic of racism. You know, not to let it rule our life. Because every time we react with anger, it feeds them, the racist. They enjoy seeing us angry or afraid or depressed. So let's not feed them anymore. I learned how to look a racist in the eye and stand up for myself. It took me a long time to do that, so I'm not expecting you to do that. The best thing to do is walk away from them. <laughs> my friends and I would say about racists sometimes racists would be calling us down and one of them would say somebody call an ambulance either him and I or I are going to the hospital we're going to fight you know? 
That's not the answer. <laughs> it's not the answer. I asked a Sikh taxi driver in Vancouver, got into the taxi, there he is, believes in his culture, he's got a beard and a turban on. He asked me, well, where are you going, sir? I said, I'm going down to Anya. Urban youth, uh, it's a youth place on uh, on uh, Hastings Street. Oh, I know where it is, sir. I said, it's across the Friendship Center. Yeah, I know. He says, what are you doing there? I said, oh, I'm going to talk to youth. Inspire them about education and about finding their gift. He says, oh, that's good, he says. He said, tell them to get a quality education. <laughs> so I said to him, I know you're, you're a Sikh. Yes, I am, he says. I said, you have children, sir? And he says, yes, I do. I said, how do you talk to your children about racism? Oh, he says, yes, I, I talk to them about it. He says, I tell them when you see a racist, someone that's being mean to you or being ugly, you walk away from them or you walk around them because they're dirty inside. And I thought, what a message. Because I was wondering, how do I talk to my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren about racism? So I started to ask others how to do this. But I am constantly telling our youth that we come from a beautiful people, that we're a beautiful people. That's where we come from. And I keep hearing my grandmother, don't think you're better than others. And some of them would even say, don't be like those white people, think you're better than others. Yeah, so that medicine for races, racism is to get them to understand that we're good people, that we're beautiful people. And not for us to become like the racist, become angry, become stressed out when we see them, become afraid, but know who we are. We're beautiful people. I brag about our people when I talk now to Canadians. Land acknowledgments, they ask me to do it. Yes, I'll do it. I say, ah, I'm thanking all the original people. Ool means original in my language. And Miuch is preferring to the earth. All the original people from Mother Earth. We're beautiful people. They kept the land pristine when they were here by themselves. There was no extinction going on in Canada when it's just indigenous people here. So we must acknowledge them and thank them for that. And I tell that to our youth. You come from beautiful people. Generous, respectful, helpful, Good sense of humor, 
That's where we come from. When you go, you help people. Even if it's just stacking chairs or peeling potatoes, whatever it is, you help them. That's our way. That's being indigenous. We're one. We're all one. We're indigenous people. We're all one. We started to learn to be individuals, but we're going to go back to being one again. That's my dream. And also, the Canadians, we must all work together to fight climate change and global warming. All of us. No room for racism. That time's over. The only time racism stays alive is when we fight each other. There's too many of them. So we need to change them, and, but most importantly, change ourselves. I was told by an elder, Jerry, you can't change society by yourself. Because I get depressed, I get angry, all the regular human emotions. And he says, I want you to know, guaranteed, you can change yourself. You, so you work on yourself. So I took that on, and I did. Where I want to be positive. I want to be part of the solution. I want to help. So that's thanksgiving to my teachers that were dignified, human beings, noble, clear eyes, look at people. You know, and, uh, without trying to fool anybody, being sincere. Those were my teachers. All my teachers are elders. I never hear them swear at anybody or swear about anybody. You know, the beautiful people. That's who I emulate. That's who I want to be like. I have one more story I'm about to wind up here. Yeah, I have one more story about facing racism. I went into a bank in Brandon, Manitoba. You can see I have braids. I grow my hair. And people say, how come you got long hair? Because I'm growing my hair so my relatives will have a long life. One of them passes away, I'll cut off all my hair. You'll know Jerry's grieving if that happens. My mother passed away, I cut off all my hair. I was just about bald. And I start growing it again for other relatives. Anyway, I walked into the bank. There's this white man in front of me. So we're standing in line. This is before COVID. Turns around, looks at me. Nice braids, he says. Too bad you're not a girl. And I looked at him because before that, he was cussing at the tillers, and the tillers were Muslims in that bank. And he was really being mean to them. He said, I don't want any BS either, he's telling them. And I said, holy. And he turns around, that's when he's seen me. He was on a roll being angry. I said to him, sir, you know why I grow my hair? No, I don't. I said, I'm growing it for a long life for my relatives. This is one of them passed, I cut it off. 
He says, oh, my wife just died last year, and his eyes changed. He's not angry anymore. He's hurting. He says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He says, yeah, she left. He says, shaking his head. And I said, sir, you got grandchildren? He says, yes, three beautiful grandchildren. I said, that's your reason for living, sir. Those grandchildren need you. They were having a little talk, and it changed. And I think it's because I look them in the eye without anger in my eyes. And my voice wasn't angry. And it diffused his anger. That might not work with everybody. I get it. <laughs> but it's worth a try. So I want to encourage you. Always walk with your head up. And you think there's racists around. Don't go like this. Don't put your head down. Because that's when they got you. Teach our children. Stay away from them. Teach our children that we're beautiful people. Don't stoop so low as to be angry all the time at another group of people. Be helpful. Be uchul be real. So that's my message around racism. That we can beat it. And that starts from inside of us. And I think the country's changing myself. You know, the world. There's more and more talk now. We now have gender ways of identifying he, her, they, she, you know. Because there's people that are different. And we must accept them as being different and treat them with respect. Because we're all one. Remember this podcast is called We're All One? We are all one. We all breathe oxygen that comes from the earth. Drink water that comes out of the earth. Wear the clothing that comes from the earth. We're all one. So I just like to encourage you to work on yourself and know there's nothing wrong with you. Well, of course, we make mistakes, but being indigenous is beautiful. Being indigenous is being resourceful, being resilient. Resilient means we can recover when we get traumatized quickly. That's what resilient means. And we are come from resilient people. I just think of my my grandmother, my late grandmother. Her husband went to jail for six months for saying, no, you're not taking my daughter to residential school. So they put him in jail. My granny recovered from that. I never see her say one bad word about the Shamas. That's a white people. Ever in her whole life. Even though that happened to her. That's a real sign of resilience. So I'd just like to thank you all for listening to this. I know it's a bit heavy one, but I think it's one that we all need to think about because it's real. I myself, every room I go to, I scan it. I look around, is it safe for Seahills it here? <laughs> you know, shows you how real racism is. And, uh, it's not what it used to be. They're not going to put me in jail for speaking my language. 
or having a potlatch or a ceremony today. But there's still people out there that are mean to us. So I'd just like to thank you and, um, you know, take care. COVID's still here. You know, I'm so grateful many have been vaccinated. And um, first year of COVID, one of the aunties said to us on a Zoom meeting, this too shall pass. So I believe COVID will pass, but we need to work at it. So thank you for coming to Teachings in the Air, and I look forward to speaking to you again. So I'll sign off now. Thank you.